0: And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Cutthroat
1: Island is over. Now stop diddling and kill the man. We set sail for Cutthroat Island!
0: Put your backs into it. Why don't you rope? Why don't you swim? We can't leave yet, Captain. We haven't put enough food on board. We need less mouths. I really think that from now on we should be partners. 50-50. 60-40. I find myself being fired upon by an entire ship! Give me the map. Give me a kiss, Master.
1: Come to seek my treasure, have you?
0: Let's finish this.
1: Andy, I, you had not seen this movie, and I, I watched it several weeks ago, and I have been waiting that long. There is not a day that has passed that I haven't waited to hear what you thought of this movie. Not a single day. Please put me out of my misery.
0: Well, yeah, because this is uh, an interesting one. This came out in 95, uh, in the uh, right around Christmas, actually, and I've, I guess maybe just because of the trailers, it didn't catch my attention. And I found it uh, like I don't know if it was the Gina Davis Matthew Modine combo that I'm like, meh, I maybe don't need to see that one, or maybe I said I'll rent it, and then I just never did, but it kind of completely evaded me, and you saw this did you did you see it in the theater in the theater yeah, okay, you For did sure, gotcha, okay, yeah, yeah, you know, I will say there is something about Rennie Harlan that he knows how to make some fairly big, bombastic, interesting films, and I don't necessarily think that it's all bad the way that he kind of does the stuff that he does. There, are, there certainly are issues with this film, but, you know, I mean, I think he's delivering exactly what he set out to do. It's, it's kind of a big, bombastic pirate movie, and I kind of had fun with it. And, you know, I, I do have issues, but I, as I watched it, I I found myself scratching my head about the reason that it's in this series, which is the Golden Raspberry Awards worst director nominees and saying, you know, I, I mean, I think that he delivered on what he set out to do. I have a hard time saying that he's the one of the worst directors of the year. So that's where I walk into this one.
1: You say that I feel like we need to just make sure we we have a common definition of terms. What do you think Rennie Harlan set out to do?
0: Well, I make a pirate adventure film that checked the boxes as to what you were kind of expecting in a pirate adventure film you 've got sword fights you 've got uh, you know chases through towns um, you 've got battles between pirate ships you 've got lost treasure you 've got People falling overboard and ending up washing ashore on desert islands. Like, I feel all of the boxes that got checked in this film also ended up getting checked in the Pirates of the Caribbean films. Like, they're, they're doing exactly the same thing that's done here. And the only difference that really stood out was that that franchise really emphasizes the fantastical. That goes along with it, like the ghost pirates and all of that sort of angle. You've got the mythical kraken and all the creatures that kind of um, pop up in that whole franchise. This film is very much just a straightforward pirate film. There's none of that fantastical element. And I think that's fine. I I don't think that they were trying to deliver kind of the fantastical side of a pirate story. And so, I mean, that's, I think, what he set out to deliver is is a romping pirate adventure.
1: I think you're right. And all of those boxes that you checked, I think he checked and you didn't even check pyrotechnics. And let me tell you, that has to have been the biggest box on his list is blowing crap up. <laughs> well, I don't think that's a pirate. No, check- you just... check. I think that's a Rennie Harlan checkbox. <laughs> that's a Rennie Harlan checkbox. This is this is like peak Harlan blowing stuff up film. And and it's exuberant in its use. Of fire and brimstone. The thing that I think was not on your list, and it makes me think you and I are going to disagree on this point, is that what Pirates of the Caribbean did that this movie did not is give us a charismatic cast. I didn't connect with anyone in this movie. I thought Gina Davis and Matthew Modine were ridiculously miscast in this movie. I didn't find them fun, believable, lovable. They were parading through an effects reel, and that is the reason I feel like I can't connect with this movie. I don't like them. I think Frank Langella is chewing up every bit that he can, and... You know, maybe with better protagonists we would have had, or or different protagonists, we would have had, uh, you know, a different relationship between the three. But my God, they are dry as a bone in this movie, and it makes it feel much longer than it is for me.
0: I 100% agree about the casting issues with those two. Like, that was, for me, my biggest issue was that they just did not feel at home in this story. Uh, But again, I I don't know if I fault Harlan for that. I mean, I, you know, I I think the script really is where the problems lay. I think.
1: Yeah, that's one other box
0: you're right. The the script, the dialogue sometimes is just so clunky coming out of their mouths that I really struggled with it. But yeah, I just, I don't know. It's a weird Thing in my head that also feels like when I'm watching a pirate film, there's something that makes a lot more sense to me when they are speaking in a British accent, as they do in the Pirates of the Caribbean films, than when they're speaking with an American accent. I, for some reason, like that, just it doesn't feel like they fit. And that's like a very surface level thing, but it really kept me from feeling that Gina Davis and uh, Matthew Modine were at home in the roles here, you know? And yeah. it is it's it is such a strange little thing, but it really, like, it makes sense why Johnny Depp went with a kind of crazy accent that he did for the Pirates films, because it just feels like it fits a little better.
1: A hundred percent. So some of this, the lore of this movie, is that, you know, Gina Davis coming off of, um, you know, Thelma and Louise, League of Their Own, like, this was an effort to establish her as an action star. And... I I think the challenge here is that Gina Davis is not an action star for me. I think you're wrong because of Long Kiss Goodnight. I know, I know you're going to say that, and I, I, I you I agree could. with me. Yeah, I barely. I it's a fringe <laughs> fringe agreement. Uh, I, go but, back but and listen this, to
0: that episode.
1: <laughs> I won't do it. I have the password. I can go re-edit <laughs> that show. Um, I I feel like this movie doesn't doesn't do a good job of showcasing whatever potential Gina Davis has to be an action star. It is clumsy and and I think Matthew Modine has the benefit his character has the benefit of being the f- sort of fish out of water pretender and stumbling through an action movie for Matthew Modine as this character is just a, a a nudge more believable because the character is so goofy. Gina Davis's character is supposed to be believable. As this action heroine and I, I never I never get there. I never
0: get there. Okay, I'm on a complete flip flop from you on that one. Because really? uh, I know I know she can carry the action. Like she Proves it in Long Kiss Goodnight. She's fantastic in that film. That movie has uh, proved that Rennie Harlan and Gina Davis could actually make a successful, strong action film given the right script. They had a strong script from Shane Black, and they delivered in spades. It's a wonderful film. Yeah, and it's tons of fun. She kicks ass in that movie. And in this film, I think she also proves that she has the the wherewithal to deliver on an action front, like. There's a shot in this film where the horse and carriage is being driven under a, like a second story shop by Matthew Modine. She's running through the shop, crashing through, trying to get out the other side to hop back onto the carriage. She breaks through in a single shot. Gina Davis breaks through the glass, rolls down the roof, lands on the seat of the carriage next to Matthew Modine, and they drive away. And it's a single shot and you can see that it's gina davis and she talked about how hard that was and one time she actually rolled off the roof and landed on the ground in front of the carriage and the carriage rolled over her and she was covered (laughs) in bruises and uh that's awful yeah it was a very difficult stunt but she pulled it off and i think that's the sort of thing that this film does and we have moments where they're up on the rope i'm going to be terrible with boat terms uh the ropes that are all attached to the masts and the the rigging all the rigging all that stuff that's just there like there there's some stuff in here that they're delivering in a fun and interesting way it's not always great but i think that gina davis for me pulls it off better than matthew modine in fact i would say matthew modine in married to the mob has a better stunt scene in that film than any of the stunt scenes that he does here. In that film, he actually climbs out of the top a little escape hatch in the top of a bus, runs across the top, jumps onto a U-Haul that's next to the bus, jumps onto its hood as the U-Haul comes to a stop and then jumps to the ground and goes to pursue Michelle Pfeiffer. He literally did all of that on screen. And, and that was more exciting of a stunt scene than most of what he does in this film. Wow.
1: You are a man with perspective. On this, for sure,
0: (laughs) I don't. I don't even.
1: I don't want to go to the mat on this because I just. I don't want to crush uh, any particular remnants of Gina Davis' relationship that you and I have. Uh, But (laughs) (laughs) I do want to lean in on the script because the script is clumsy and clunky, and and there is there is some sort of alchemy that does not exist in this movie in particular. That where where either of our principal characters are able to create. Screen magic together, the words don't work. Maybe it's the lack of British accent or fake weird pirate accent. I I actually am on your side on that. Um, but what is what is stunning to me is that you know R- Robert King and and Mark Norman. Mark Norman, I believe, is more known as a fiction author and he's written a couple of screenplays and done well i mean he's best original screenplay for shakespeare in love with tom stoppard so you know put him with robert king who has a lot of uh, more credits in terms of writing credits um uh, and went on to sort of own the the uh, the good quote industrial complex on television the good wife and the good fight um and evil and your honor like these are. This is an extraordinary set of television properties that have dominated the late 2000s and, and than the the teens. So clearly, these people know how to put words on on screen.
0: Well, they do, but I mean the script was a mess, and I tried to find more backstory on how the script was processed because we had four credited. People working on the story of this, in two in pairs, Michael Frost, Beckner, James Gorman, Bruce A. Evans, uh, Reynold Gideon. Those four had story credit, and then Robert King and Mark Norman had the screenplay credit. I know that the script underwent a lot of rewrites, and I'm wondering if there was a version of the script that was rewritten by another pair that then was rewritten by this final pair, and it was changed so much that those first two pairs— got relegated to just story by credits and there's very few bits of their original scripts left in here. I'm very curious about what happened. You know, I know Michael Douglas was originally on board to play Shaw and Gina Davis was on and then uh Michael Douglas one of the reasons he left was, you know, he's one of those actors he needed to have the same amount of screen time as Gina Davis, and when Gina Davis's role was expanded, one of the reasons that he quit was because of that. So I don't know, like, where in the script writing process was all of that. And then uh, Rennie Harlan was so focused on recasting the role, a lot of script work was done without him. And then eventually he had to spend a million of his own money to work on rewrites of the script because um, Carol Coe couldn't put any more money into it. And so I just like I feel like this is one of those scripts that went through far too many hands and far too many opinionated people with decisions about what they thought needed to be in here. And it just ended up with some of the really just clumsiest dialogue. It was it was um, a kind of a frustrating experience listening to uh, words come out of people's mouths in this. Yes.
1: Oh, God, it was so frustrating, especially because, again, those terrible words were matched up with a pirate movie. And by all rights, I should fall in love with this pirate movie. I like boats. I like the word "vast" and ahoy. <laughs> I like rigging. I definitely like uh, jumping from or, or being pushed from planks. Uh, into the ocean, the ships in this movie looked fantastic, right the The production design was wonderful. Blowing those ships up in the water was horrifying to me Exa- ex- exudes exactly the feeling I want to have, even now, as somebody who knows how they make movies, that they built those things and blew them up is awesome and horrible like <laughs> it, it's just it's just great. And it really, it bummed me out watching the movie this time. It was a huge bummer because I wanted so badly to fall in love with the people on screen. And I just didn't. Yeah,
0: I, Although, I mean, you mentioned Frank Langella and I enjoyed him as dog. Like I actually felt like he worked in the part. He kind of knew what movie he was doing and kind of set out to be big and, and over the top. And I enjoyed what he brought to the table here uh, more than most of the people that we end up seeing
1: i back to the screenplay just one more time do you think they uh, part of the the sort of or one of the symptoms of the overworked screenplay is the the actual chase of the for the three different parts of the thing that they're trying to put all together one the gruesome part of the map that was tattooed on <laughs> on their, her dad's scalp <laughs> that was fantastic that was awesome. brilliant I loved it <laughs> so good uh, I, and it was actually a good, really good setup too, because he taps his head earlier and he says, "You know where is it where's the map?" And he taps it yeah it's right here, but he was really touching it uh that I thought that was great. There are some really great little moments in that, but but it just feels like that's part of the unintentional comedy is that the movie is confused about what it is it wants me to understand they're chasing at any given point because it moves from rescue to chase to artifact search to uh, adventure explorational you, you know so quickly that it there doesn't seem to be a linear kind of action emotional thread through the through the major structure of the story
0: i didn't run into that i found like i was tracking along pretty well as far as what their goal was at any given time as far as like translating and then trying to find the other pieces and like all of those different bits and pieces uh, ended up working for me. And, and so for me, I didn't have too much of an issue plot wise for me, like I found the plot did its job as far as what a pirate adventure w- was setting out to do. It didn't do anything new. And that, I think, is one of the uh, the drawbacks to it. Is it is it like it's checking the boxes, but it's not ever thinking outside of the box and coming up with something new or different, which definitely the Pirates of the Caribbean films do. Like, they come up with some stuff that sometimes you could argue it's not exactly working, but at least it's uh, different and big. Like, they went all out with that one. So that's one of the, the downsides to this for me. Um, and so for me, it's like the plot is fine. I would have liked to seen a few more unique things, but it's really just like the characters and the relationships uh, that um, that I largely struggled paired with paired with the dialogue. Yeah, you know, one example is just like the character of of John Reed, Maury Chaykin's character, who is uh, a chronicler. He is an author who's writing a book about pirates so he's riding along with pirates on various journeys to get a sense as to what life is like so that he can write this book and and his story is a little confused in the way that it's told and i just think that like they never set it up quite well enough and we have this one moment uh, when they're in Port Royal. This is when when they first come to town. They're trying to find a translator, and there's a conversation between Morgan, uh, Gina Davis's character, and her sidekick Glasspool, played by Stan Shaw, as they're trying to figure out. Okay, we we can't look like pirates. We have to. I have to look like a lady. We have to go in there and try to find this translator and buy him. He's being sold as a slave. Blah blah blah. And then Maury Chaykin is just like, well, I could teach you how to be somebody with class and dignity yeah, and all of that, but I have to run off and I have to go talk to a a bookseller or something like that. And it was such a strange like out for him that I was like, wait a minute, is like, what what just happened here? Like, why? Like, I actually had to back it up and go, why is he leaving here? I It was very confusing to me. But especially because then as they go off to the prison to look at the slaves the camera follows him as he kind of walks away and i'm like okay so are we going to be following him now and get a sense as to is he going to stab in the back i mean he does eventually stab stab in the back but it wasn't set up like he was going to and so it was just such a strange way that that whole scene was put together that i just like okay i feel like they had elements of the script here that just never got threaded properly for me to really make sense as to this character. And at this particular point in the story, eventually you figure it out pretty easily. But at this point, I'm just like, I just don't, I'm not clear. Yeah. You know? A hundred percent. That was I'm I'm glad you brought that up because it was like the
1: stakes free um walk away where we're just walk following a guy running some errands and I, I it was completely pointless. Um because even we actually do get a, a shot of him with the or, or or a sequence of him with his bookseller, publisher. <laughs> it was like, why Why did they need to support that? Do you know what? I already believed that he was a, an author chronicling this story. I didn't
0: need you to cement that with that sequence at all. Uh, at all. Yeah. I mean, it, it's only there because it leads to him being caught by the others. Um, but even to that end, it's like. How did they know that this guy existed? Like there was nothing that like they just happened upon him or or like that was it was a frustrating element because I just like I needed more pieces to make all of that make sense. It just it was it was that was a sloppy element of the story.
1: It was sloppy, but I. this is an example of one of those sequences where I think is overthought, because honestly, like you put him in the castle where they were going, right? You have some thugs pick him off because he's a noted chronicler. He's a journalist, whatever you want to say. Like, he could just be recognized and be pulled out of a crowd. You don't need the entire artifice of walking down the street, going into the bookseller. Like, it it is, I could, I would have bought that based on much less and what they added just made it more
0: confusing. Yeah, it definitely comes across in a fairly clunky way, which is, yeah, you know, which is frustrating. Which
1: I think it's the, the, that's the, that's the testament to the movie writ large. But, but because it's such a big effects movie, let's talk about Peter Levy uh, just a bit, the cinematographer behind this. Do you, are you a uh, uh, Levitron? as they call him.
0: <laughs> uh, let's see. Have we discussed anything of his? I don't think so. I don't think we have. We are we are uh, Peter Levy adjacent
1: because we just did Predator. He did Predator 2. I don't believe we've done any of the Nightmare on Elm Street, but the Nightmare on Elm Street, the dream child is uh, on his list. Uh,
0: blown away. Yeah, he's a filmmaker or he's a DP who's worked a lot with Stephen Hopkins, uh, like on a number 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, uh, 6, 7, 8, 9 films with Stephen Hopkins, uh, Australian cinematographer. You know, I, I mean, I think he's delivering, uh, you know, what Rennie Harlan set out to to create here. I mean, it feels very much like a pirate movie. You know, we've got kind of the uh, the shady, str- you know, the seedy streets at night. You've got the the bars. The active markets at day. Yeah. I mean, all of that stuff. Right. The, all the stuff in the water tanks where the storm is uh, blowing them away and just like all of that sort of stuff. Like, it worked. I think creating the look, I don't know. I always look at movies in water tanks and... I, I try to gauge like, is this a water tank movie where I'm buying what it's creating for me here? And this is one where I did like I bought all of the stuff in the ocean and that works generally with the cinematography along with just kind of uh, the, the effects team and how it's directed. And it's funny because some of the worst water tank stuff that I remember watching around this era was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It's is right after the opening when it's the first time we see Harrison Ford, he's trying to retrieve that cross that he lost as a kid and he's on the boat, the bad guy's boat, and he's going through the whole thing to get it off, or, you know, get it. that whole thing. When they're sliding back and forth across the deck. Yeah, it felt like a water tank. It just never felt real and this film the water tank work feels real and so to that end totally i, I enjoyed a lot as to how they put it together
1: yes yes it, that it, another thing that makes this movie feel so bittersweet that that the look of the film is awesome for me it, the action is awesome the photography is awesome everything i buy into the universe of cutthroat island uh very very well
0: i think it's really strong Yeah, like production design, costume design, all of these things are like top-notch for what they're trying to achieve here. The fact that they were shooting in Malta and shooting in Thailand to kind of create the looks of these towns and of these islands, like it all feels very real. Like they are creating, like it's expert world building is what we're getting here. Yeah. So to that end, can we talk about Rennie Harlan then? Because as the director, as the person who's, Pulling all of these different pieces together, what do we think of Rennie Harlan as a director? This is our third Rennie Harlan film that we've talked about. We talked about The Long Kiss Goodnight in a Shane Black series. We talked about Die Hard 2 in our Die Hard series. Where do you stand with Harlan, first off, as a as a director?
1: Well, I have a secret place in my heart for Deep Blue Sea as a shark movie. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And... I very much enjoyed some of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Uh, did not enjoy the adventures of Ford Fairline. Long Kiss Goodnight, obviously, we talked about. I know, we're, I don't think we're fans of Exorcist the Beginning. Which one was that? Was that the one that was more of a, no, I haven't seen that one.
0: The Exorcist the Beginning is the one that uh, started getting made by Paul Schrader, and they pulled it away from him. And it was almost done, but the studio thought it was terrible and brought brought, brought Rennie Harlan in, essentially gave him a new budget to reshoot as much, it seems like as much as he needed. I actually just rewatched both of, or watched yeah. both of these recently. And it was amazing how different the two versions of the film are. They're both terrible, uh, which is <laughs> unfortunate, but it's a, it's a definitely an interesting The thought experiment to just look at the two films and to see how two different directors crafted such different stories from essentially the same material. But it's like a prequel, basically, a young father, Marin, when he's in, I can't remember where he is, somewhere in Africa.
1: Okay. All right. So it's that's unfortunate. I think if you look at the the rest of his films, they're all like fair to middling. I haven't seen most of his stuff. I have seen every episode that he directed of Burn Notice. And I am a uh, I'm a big fan of that show in general. Uh, but he didn't come on until very late to direct in the series. And so, um, you know, he's not it's not like he determined the look and feel of the show. Uh anyway,
0: I don't know where where are you? Well, interestingly, he is a filmmaker who has had 6 nominations by the Golden Raspberry Awards for worst
1: director. Oh my goodness.
0: <laughs> the Adventures of Ford Fairlane, Cutthroat Island, Driven, Exorcist the Beginning, The Legend of Hercules and The Misfits. You know, I have only seen I've I've seen Nightmare on Elm Street 4, Die Hard 2, uh of the films he's directed. Cliffhanger, Cutthroat Island, Long Kiss Goodnight, Deep Blue Sea, and Exorcist The Beginning. So I've not seen a lot of his stuff, but I've seen the bulk of the bigger projects of his that came out in the late 80s, early 90s. And I kind of like his whole career uh, has kind of continued, but he's been making a lot of stuff that is just films that are likely deemed more straight to video types of projects, you know, and that's, I think where he's, um, interestingly moved to most interesting to me is the fact that this year he's doing a revision, uh, revisioning remaking. I don't know what it's going to be called, but it's, it's, uh, of the strangers where he's actually doing it in three chapters, the strangers, um, uh, part one, two, and three. And supposedly they're all coming out this year, which I am very wow. curious about because the strangers is definitely one of those uncomfortable uh, home invasion movies that I think you talked about on, on sitting in the dark, right?
1: Yeah. 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 Interesting. Three parts.
0: Yeah. I'm curious to see what he's going to do with that. But you know, I, I think Rennie Arlen has a very sharp mind when it comes to big, interesting action filmmaking, but he's one of those people that I think it really has to be a project that that works in order to tap his potential. And I think it's happened a few times, but not often enough. I, I, he's one of those weird directors where if
1: I don't think about Rennie Harland and you say the name Rennie Harland, I think, oh yeah, I like Rennie Harland. But overall, <laughs> most of the stuff that he's done is a miss. By all rights, I should love Driven.
0: I should love it. And it's not a good movie. Oh, that was Stallone. No, yeah, I missed that one. But like of the films that I've seen... I enjoy Nightmare on Elm Street 4, Die Hard 2, Cliffhanger, Long Kiss Goodnight, Deep Blue Sea. It's only and this film I enjoy well enough. It's definitely lesser film for me. And then Exorcist at the beginning I just think was a little bit of a mess, but I don't fault him. It just seems like, you know, the way that they put that thing together. So, I feel like of his films, I've kind of I don't know, maybe it's just I've lucked out and I've mostly seen ones that are the better films. Like I haven't seen Driven, I haven't seen anything after 2004 skip trace uh johnny knoxville and jackie chan what do you think that would be like i'd like to think it would be okay but uh i don't know yeah yeah i haven't seen it and i don't think i will i heard devil's pass was an interesting one and that's one that i have had on my watch list i'm curious to check that one out because i I think we talked about the trailer on a uh saturday matinee ages ago yeah sounds
1: sounds familiar Things like uh Legend of Hercules should be right it should be his napoleon right that's a f- that's n-
0: apparently not great i haven't seen it does not review well no but okay, so as far as his direction here, like are there elements uh, i mean he's working with the difficult script it was a it ran into all sorts of production issues because of. All of the script and casting issues. And then he it's I don't know, it sounds like he was always behind, like he spent so much time focusing on casting, that the script ended up being a mess. And then he spent so much time on all these other things that uh, his sets and uh, all of the stuff was a, a mess. And he had to do all this rebuilding and, and everything. And also, he can be a difficult person to work with. Like he actually uh, got in an argument with one of his uh, the camera team and fired them, and more than two dozen crew members quit. Like there were other issues at play, not just film related, but personality related, that I think went into it. And also, you know, this was a period when he was married to Gina Davis, and I, I think that with the blinders on, was unable to see that she likely was not the right person. To carry this film which is uh you know i am glad that he did it in long kiss goodnight and maybe this was just kind of a trial run and then they figured it out then but um it just she did not work and i just don't think he ever would have sought to find another person opposite her
1: i think and and they had just gotten married in 1993 right this movie came out in 95 so their marriage was very fresh yeah, right, right. And that I, It's hard to not to watch this movie without that in mind for me. It's hard not to watch this movie without thinking that I would be
0: a disaster directing my wife. Oh, I know. I couldn't do it. Other options. Initially, Michael Douglas was opposite her. Could you see that working any better? No. There's a weird age gap there that I yeah, struggle with. A, yeah, uh, unco- Disquieting. Other people that they op- offered the role to Tom Cruise, Keanu Reeves, Russell no, Crowe, no. Liam Neeson, Jeff Bridges. Ray Fiennes, Charlie Sheen, Michael Keaton, Tim Robbins, Daniel Day-Lewis, Gabriel Byrne. Oh, my
1: gosh. Not a single one of those seems like that would fix things. Who else? Was there anyone else up to play Morgan? Or was it always Gina Davis?
0: No, I I think it was always her because this was a film that they were doing together. You know, he was, yeah, it was her vehicle. He wanted to turn her into an action-adventure star and was pushing to the whole thing was kind of around her and it was who is the guy that is going to be opposite
1: her so given all of that and all of those names you just listed i think matthew modine was the right choice what do you think of that controversial opinion
0: uh yeah i i've always matthew modine is an actor that i struggle with a lot like i enjoy him when it's the right film like full metal jacket i really enjoy him there gross anatomy Never seen Gross Anatomy. <laughs>
1: Gross Anatomy with Daphne Zuniga. Oh, I love that movie so much. Woo,
0: Andy, we need to watch it right now. Let's <laughs> hang up the show. Hang up the show. We're watching it. Memphis bell I Yeah, but I don't consider that like a Matthew Modine vehicle. Like that's a kind of an ensemble cast um in that film. And weirdly, like the person I picture with that is Harry Connick Jr. And I don't think he was the lead, but he's the face that I picture with that movie for some reason. Yeah, he was not the lead yet, right? uh married to the mob I enjoyed him quite a bit and I feel like there was a lot of stuff that I just didn't click with him until stranger things <laughs> that was like finally I'm like <laughs> oh oh matthew Bedeen works so well here this is great that's funny
1: I I don't have a problem with matthew Bedeen. I I really I, the first thing I saw him in was was gross anatomy and I really like that movie a lot I have it it's another soft spot uh in my heart vision quest uh you know I just think he's for me he 's a weirdo charismatic tall guy, and uh, I just always thought that that it 's nice that actors like that can have a solid run of work throughout their career. He has done a lot of work and he's just he 's become one of those faces, and you 're right once he hit stranger things, like he kind of gets that resurgence where everybody 's talking about Matthew Modine again but i I think he 's a very talented guy. I also saw him uh we saw him speak. he came to Chautauqua uh and uh, we saw him speak on the main stage and he was he's just a, a really interesting guy talking about the the role of creativity and he's very very thoughtful he's so thoughtful which is not what i get out of this movie necessarily but it's nice to know that you know he comes
0: with it it's funny that as a kind of a quirky actor the pirate role i would definitely prefer is johnny depp who is a very quirky actor like i i think he found a quirk that works really well for the world of piracy like kind of yeah. playing off of uh the different people he was pulling from matthew modine seems very much like matthew modine here and it doesn't come across as a as somebody in the period and that's i think true for both him and Gina davis and may, again maybe that boils down to my simple surface thing of the accent i don't know but i don't think it,
1: i don't think it's It might be surface, but I don't think it's simple. I think it's I think that's an accurate thing. It just doesn't feel like of of a part. It doesn't feel like you're absolutely right. It doesn't feel like we're in the world.
0: But I look at the other roles, like Russell Crowe, at least was Australian. You know, Uh, Ray Fiennes uh, was British. Daniel Day Lewis was British. Uh, or somewhere from the UK and Gabriel Byrne. And so there are people that would have been bringing accents to the role. But weirdly, like I find all of them so much more serious actors. If you imagine Daniel
1: Day Lewis in this movie, God.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think, has Daniel Day Lewis been in something like fun and what you'd call a romp? Like I, I, I can't think of one. Oh my God, you're right. Is it all serious, like dour serious projects from him? It can't be. He has to have laughed in a movie. <laughs> right? Uh like, I don't think so. I'm looking at Lincoln, his list. Did he did Lincoln oh, laugh? That was a real funny <laughs> one. That was actually a hoot. Uh as they would say.
1: Such a hoot. Oh. Yeah. Nine. Uh I mean it's it's a musical. I think he I think he had it's he had some frivolity in Nine. It may not have come with a smile, though. That's important. <laughs> there will be blood. He got a lot of joy out of beating up the preacher at the end. Yeah. but Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah, it's funny. Like, he's not an actor who jumps Bill the into... Butcher, he laughed as Bill the
1: Butcher. But it was more <laughs> maniacal.
0: A little more maniacal. Yeah. Yeah. So, I don't think it was a good list. Like, Michael Keaton actually could have done it. Like, he has that... That crazy Beetlejuice, uh, much ado about nothing kind of personality in his acting that could have played as a pirate. Like, maybe he would have been the one that I felt might have worked better. Yeah. I just also feel like him and Gina Davis, um, they did another movie together, but um, I I don't know. Was that,
1: weren't they the political, like the campaign writers, speech writers? Yeah. I liked that
0: movie. That was, uh, well, it was speechless, actually.
1: Yeah. That was, that was a movie I liked, and that was also Rennie Harlan,
0: wasn't it? Well, he produced it. He didn't direct it, but he did work on it as okay. a producer. Oh, so, yeah. all right. That makes more yeah. sense, for yeah. sure. Interesting. Well, uh, and that was the year right before this. So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, it's, I struggle with that. But again, I just struggle with the cast, so. And Michael Keaton dodged a bullet, I'll tell you what. He got the right movie. With, um, what did he do this year? Multiplicity? To get speechless
1: instead of, uh, instead of Cutthroat Island.
0: No, well, I mean, it would have been and Cutthroat Island because it wasn't like an either or. Yeah.
1: I'm I'm just glad to think of it as an either
0: or. I'm just saying his next film was Multiplicity, and I don't think he necessarily escaped a bullet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. That wasn't that, a great one. You know, one. that's that's a fair assessment. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, what else about this one? Anything else?
1: You know, we talked a little bit on our pre-show about the, this movie's sort of reputational baggage as being the movie that, um, that sunk Carol Coe. And, you know, we went through. there. There's a, a non-trivial list of underperforming films that led to this movie. But this movie did break the back of a struggling Carol Coe. There's, there's no way. I, I don't think you can look at this movie any other way. They were struggling, but this movie was the was the, final, the final straw.
0: Unfortunately, yeah, it really was. Um, It was the film that that, um, killed... I mean, Guinness Book of World Records lists this film as the biggest box office bomb of all time. Well, it did for a while. I mean, it has been (laughs) surpassed afterward. But uh, this film really, you know, for quite a while was... I I think before this, uh, Heaven's Gate might have been the biggest box office uh, failure. And that was 1980. So 15 years before a film did as poorly as this did adjusting for inflation it's estimated to have lost over 200 million since then mortal engines in in 2018 lost 204 million the 13th warrior which is actually four years after this in 1999 it's i mean it's tricky because they're not exactly sure on what the budget Actually was for this film, so they say the adjusted for inflation loss was somewhere between 121 million and 227 million. The Lone Ranger in 2013, 201 to 239 million dollars loss, and John Carter, 143 to potentially 255 million dollars in a loss in the red. It certainly still is toward the top of uh, films that have had a major loss.
1: I know this was a film with a central character that was designed for Gina Davis, but I just have to ask is there is there another actor you would have put in Gina Davis's role that you think could have made more of the part than Davis or so? and and I should say, I at no point. Would we wouldn't be fifty uh, something white men if we didn't talk about the the feminist kind of angle of this movie, right? The part of the thing that I think you could say in '95 was impacted some of this movie is that people didn't weren't able to wrap their heads around a a female pirate, and I I think that we've that makes this movie feel dated in an interesting way that it was just so wildly ahead of its time, it, and I think. It was great for it. Were there other action-oriented actresses at this time that you think could have could have carried this role? Say with with Matthew Modine, knowing if, that this is completely armchair casting.
0: Again, just because my brain is really stuck on the British angle with this, and like you know, I just ended up buying Kira Knightley more in this world than Gina Davis. I'm trying to think like that would have put it at people like Emma Thompson and, uh, Kate Winslet and, uh, who else would have been. And I'm just trying to think, I don't know if I would have added either of them to my list of other options. Uh, Do you have somebody on the top of your head? I wish I did like right off the bat. All I can think about is Linda Hamilton.
1: (laughs) So, well, because, yeah. you know, we saw Linda Hamilton do it, like, and, and become an, in, an incredible sort of action-oriented star. But, of course, we also have someone like Sigourney Weaver, right? We have, um, I don't know, see, you say British, and all I can think of is Meryl Streep's amazing British accent. So, who else was doing it at this point? It, you know, I mean, Sandra Bullock did Speed right around this time, and she, I would not categorize Sandra Bullock as an action star, I would categorize Sandra Bullock as an awesome foil to an action movie.
0: Angela Bassett, maybe? Angela Bassett's an interesting one, for sure. Yeah, I, I'm just, I, you know, I'm so stuck on, like, the the British angle. I'm trying to think, okay, I mean, could I see Kate Winslet, Helena Bonham Carter, in the role? Uh, you know, I suppose, possibly? Emma Thompson played a pirate a few years later, actually in the animated uh, yeah uh, Treasure Planet. Michelle
1: Yeoh, nineteen ninety two, she was in Super Cop. Nineteen ninety seven, she was in Tomorrow Never Dies. Incredible action performer, not British, but certainly could have been written into the ex- exotic kind of character of the the mysterious pirate from the
0: east. Yeah, I actually think that's kind of a, a fun choice. I would I would I would like to see that. I I could buy into that one. I'm just like, who's a like British comedy? Like, that's where, like, because I feel like it's kind of that comedy action that we're, it's not just like an action star, like Rebecca Ferguson in the Mission Impossible movies or something. It's like somebody who carries the comedy and the action. And that's where I'm running into a wall with uh, with options. So I, I'm sure somebody's there. But, I mean, I think these are some interesting ones. Oh, you know who actually I could see in the part? I got I got one. And I think it would work in the year it. is Kate Beckinsale.
1: I was going to say, Kate came back and sell. Andy, we,
0: oh God, we should do a podcast together.
1: Oh my God, we talked about her so much.
0: Oh uh, yes, all those Underworld films. But she would carry it off. Like uh, I could absolutely see her doing it and doing it well. Look at what she's, I mean, she's got uh, Van Helsing.
1: She did Van Helsing, all the yep, Underworld movies. Right. Like she, she totally, she could totally do that. Wow, that was so great. I just feel a, like a little bit of a
0: sweat and in the era like mid-twenties like yeah i could see her pulling it off that would have been fun completely well we fixed cutthroat island (laughs) all right well i suppose that's it so we'll be right back but first our credits
1: The next reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by Ian Post, Oriole Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at the-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, according to my friend, Internet, this is what Letterboxd is. Letterboxd is a global social network for grassroots film discussion and discovery. Use it as a diary to record and share your opinion about films as you watch them, or just keep track of films you've seen in the past. Showcase your favorites on your profile page.
0: That is
1: a lot. You bet it is. That's why I want you... To tell our fair listeners just one thing you do with Letterboxd that has changed the way you watch movies.
0: Let them have it. Okay, are you ready for this? So ready. I love lists. As of today, I have 246 lists in my account. I use them to track the movies I watch, organize them in all sorts of different ways. I track them by hand. I clone lists from other people. I use them to plan what I'm going to be watching. All sorts of things. I just, I love creating lists. It's a fantastic tool.
1: Classiest animated characters. Andy, what is this?
0: We love Letterboxd. And if you're a movie lover, we are sure you will too. And when you upgrade from the free account, you will remove ads and support the great Kiwi team building this amazing service.
1: Just use the discount code Nextree or visit thenextreel.com slash letterbox to get 20% off your pro or patron membership. And it works for renewals as well. All right, sequels and remakes. When did we see Cutthroat Island 2? (laughs)
0: Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, this did so poorly that uh, not only did it kill any potential for sequels or remakes, but also killed the interest in pirate-related movies. Not that it was a big thing, but uh, nobody was interested in, in um, spending money on a pirate-themed movie until Disney, of course, came along. The only thing that really came out of this was a video game. Acclaim Entertainment published it uh, right after the movie, and it played on all the platforms, Super NES, Sega Genesis, Game Boy uh, as a tie-in. And that was it. That was all we got. It is
1: a 42-minute, 26-second speedrun playthrough on YouTube. You can watch the whole thing, and you can put it on <laughs> double speed and knock this out in 20 minutes and feel like you were there. There you go. It is exactly what you would might expect from a video game of the era. It's very like Prince of Persia 1. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, th- we are here because of the awards. How
0: did this do at awards season? Possibly the poorest of all of the the films that we're going to be talking about in this particular series. It only had one nomination, and that is the one we're talking about for this series: the Golden Raspberry Awards, the the uh, the Razzie for Worst Director. Rennie Harlan, was nominated, losing to Paul Verhoeven, and that's it. That was the only shot it had.
1: Wow. Yeah, <laughs> it was it was nominated. For worst director and lost that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I guess, do we have, do you have more to talk about with the budget? We talked about its, its legendary place in history uh, in its role against Carol Co., but what else do we need to know?
0: Well, yeah, I'll just fill you in. I mean, having proven himself at the box office with Cliffhanger a few years earlier, Harlan did manage to land a $98 million budget for his pirate adventure film, or almost $204 million in today's dollars. The movie opened at a very busy Christmas weekend, December 22nd, 1995, opposite Waiting to Exhale, Grumpy Old Men, Sudden Death, Tom and Huck, Dracula, Dead and Loving It, Nixon, Balto, and the limited release of Four Rooms. It did not find its audience, opening in 14th place and dropping out of theaters relatively quickly. The movie went on to earn $10 million domestically and $8.5 million internationally for a total gross of almost $38.5 million in today's dollars. Needless to say, it was a massive bomb, as we've said, for Harlan, Carol Co and MGM distributing it and was part of the reason Carol Co filed Chapter 11 and closed. All told, this ended up with an adjusted loss per finished minute of 1.3 million. The bottom of our list, almost double the adjusted loss per finished minute of The Adventures of Baron Munchausen. But, uh, hey, I mean, that one got a criterion release. You know, maybe there's hope for this one.
1: <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, Andy, that, that is adorable innocence you <laughs> display just then. Uh, uh, well, I'm glad we watched it. I, I have been secretly really looking forward to watching this movie again to see if it's really as bad as it as bad as it. I think it's it's got so much going for it, and uh, it, it just I, I didn't connect with it in spite of every everything that I think is going on around the principal structure of the movie and the cast.
0: <laughs> yeah, it has a lot of issues, but I think I ended up finding it a lot more fun to watch than you did. <laughs>
1: No, I, I no, I I I disagree. I think we agree. I
0: think we largely agree. Uh, I maybe. What do you think maybe of that? We did. Let's see. I, I, let's let's I, see, I, what see what happens right. next.
1: Let's see. All right.
0: Well, we'll be right back for those ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, Roland Jaffe's The Scarlet Letter. Friends and fellow voyagers in the greatest of all dreams. If we are to succeed in building our new Jerusalem, then the power of love, yea, his divine love, must bind our hearts as one. It is not considered fitting for a young woman to live alone here husband has sent me on ahead to prepare a place for his arrival so that is what i intend to do i greatly enjoyed your sermon it's rare for a man so young to speak with such a force of passion but well, for some reason i
1: i felt most inspired today
0: i thought the young minister very handsome i can see what others
1: cannot <laughs> but i know the hearts of men
0: there is mine enemy, save the Lord God, for only I shall consume thee, only I shall fill thee up. From Hollywood Pictures and director Roland Joffe, comes the classic story. God help me, Esther.
1: I love thee. God help me, I love thee too. Of a love
0: so forbidden So fierce.
1: Where is he, woman?
0: (laughs) Their world would never be the same. Do you not believe that you have sinned?
1: I believe I have sinned in your eyes. But who's to know if God shares your views? You will swear upon your bodice this symbol. Why do you wait. Put it on. It is not a badge of my shame but your own.
0: To me Moore.
1: They are the lie, but you are allowing them to destroy everything that is good in you.
0: Gary Oldman.
1: I'm in hell!
0: Robert Duvall. Behold! The devil's our own child! Scarlet Letter. You know what I got the other day, Pete? Stephen
1: King's latest. Want to borrow it? Do you know who you're talking to? What do you mean? Andy, when's the last time I read a paper book?
0: It's been, like, decades. I would much rather use Kindle, or better yet, Audible. What am I thinking? I don't read paper books anymore, either. I am an audiobook guy all the way. For those of you looking to listen to the books behind the films we talk about here on The Next Reel, Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at thenextwheelcom slash Audible.
1: It's the way to go. Uh, Season 13 is a fun one, looking at various awards categories
0: over the decades, from Best Picture nominees to cinematography, adapted screenplays to visual effects, and a good number of movies we're discussing started out as books or plays that you can read now on Audible.
1: 1940 Academy Awards Best Picture nominees of Mice and
0: Men and Wuthering Heights. What a great way to start this season. In other series, we also covered The Killers, based on Hemingway's short story.
1: A Place in the Sun, Strangers on a Train, A Streetcar Named Desire.
0: Beckett, A Boy and His Dog, The Princess Bride, Congo.
1: The Scarlet Letter,
0: Jackie Brown, The Woman in Black. So many great movies from so many great sources, and they're all on Audible. Producing
1: this podcast is a lot of fun, but takes a lot of time. All right, Andy, it's letterbox time.
0: Oh, yes, it is. Uh,
1: uh, letterbox.com slash The Next Reel. That's us. We're going to see, where are you going to take your stars to give
0: stars? What movie will you shame to give stars to Cutthroat Island? I had fun with this one. I had a lot of issues, but I have a hard time saying, you know, Harlan wasn't delivering something that he didn't set out to deliver it still is for me a somewhat entertaining pirate film i'm gonna give it three stars and i'm actually gonna give it a heart (laughs) wow okay so here's where i land we're pretty close
1: the thing is i'm going with is it a two-star movie with a heart or a three-star movie with nothing Huh. i think it's a two-star movie with a heart because I so disconnect with everything with everything that, that so many of the humans are doing on screen. But man, I love watching everything blow up. I think that is that's where every dollar went <laughs> to this movie. And as a work of pyrotechnic art and piracy, it's really great. And I low key kind of love it for what it is. Uh so I think I'm gonna be two stars in a heart, which actually I think is pretty
0: good. Yeah, I think that's fine. I mean it's it is kind of one of those not-so-great movies that you can kind of easily love. Like, this could potentially fit into Guilty Pleasure Land. You know, it's one of those films that's like, you know, it's not super great, but it's, I don't know, it's fun. I would watch it again. I'm so, I'm really glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear
1: that from you. Yeah. Fantastic.
0: So that lands it with a two and a half and a heart over on our account on Letterboxd. That's at The Next Reel. You can find me at Soda Creek Film. You can find Pete at Wright. And, uh, yeah, so check us out over there. So what did you think about Cutthroat Island? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community, where we're going to be talking about the movie this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. This is a funny little side note, Pete. This is, I just have to read this. This is on the Wikipedia page. In another interview, Matthew Modine said that other factors contributing to the production costs running out of control included Harlan's cost prohibitive habit of always having three cameras rolling at the same time. And Harlan and Davis spending large sums to have cases of V8 vegetable juice shipped out to the set in Malta for themselves. Toward the end of shooting, an entire room was found to be full of unopened juice and everyone present was obliged to drink it. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, that, that just that's makes awesome. me laugh to no end. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Okay. So, bad movie? High reviews. What do you think about that? It's not a bad movie. <laughs> that's,
0: a, that's a hard way to come into this.
1: You're right. You're right. I came in with too, it was too much. That was too much. I, I came in too high. All right, so I'm going to go with Justin Liberte's four star, uh, who I think puts it uh, puts it smartly. It's not. It is not going for the punch here. It's not going for the laugh. Not sure who was crazier, Carol Coe for spending a hundred million on this, or Rennie Harlan for actually making it. Who, whichever it may be, this along with Waterworld feels like a swan song for a specific type. Of studio distributed practical adventure film, full of epic set pieces, a grand scale, and some of the best explosions to ever grace movie screens. It doesn't hurt that it also that it's also two hours of Gina Davis just beating the shit out of surly men who very much deserve it. Everyone who slept on this or dismissed it in 1995 or since should be ashamed. I uh, don't. <laughs> no, you don't have to feel ashamed. Yeah, there's no shame here. That's right. That's right. But those are all high points. Good explosions. And Gina Davis does beat the crap out of people who deserve it.
0: Absolutely. Well, I've got a five star and a heart by the culture shocker who says this movie is a total train wreck. But it's a five out of five as far as entertainment goes for me. Seen this movie a hundred times and I don't think I could understand anyone who finds it boring. Succinct and to the point.
1: There you go. Succinct and to the point. All right. Well, uh, thanks Letterboxd. You're the best.